Okay. All right. So let, let's move on, Arthur. Uh, there's a few more cases for you guys. Yep, uh, clicker. Great. Okay. Um, so some of you are probably looking at the schedule and saying, oh, we're running a little bit behind. So um, I have a kind of a bit of a curveball uh, talk here that we've added in the last year. Because uh, you may have noticed, oh, I don't need this, do I? Um, you may have noticed that our country is in the midst of an opioid epidemic and that many people are suffering from substance use. And this particularly afflicts those with hepatitis C. So 95% of this talk will focus on those issues, just a little touch on renal failure just to review that. So, so that's the goal of this presentation. And um, I have to also apologize because uh, not only are we running behind, I have to go catch a flight um, after this. So I hope that you'll ask a few questions, because I'm about to drop kind of a, perhaps a little bit of a mind-blowing bomb as to what we should be doing for hepatitis C patients, um, which has been an overturn of uh, another uh, paradigm that we've had, which is denying patients treatment. So uh, again, I mentioned this earlier, any treatment of acute hepatitis C infection is technically not FDA-approved. Um, it's all about chronic hepatitis C infection. So I just present to bring a person to mind, a 21-year-old woman with a congenital uh, UPJ junction obstruction and has progressed in childhood to end-stage renal disease um, by age 17. And she has a variety of other um, conditions, including ADHD, anemia, growth retardation, some of which are related to her end-stage renal disease. And she's been waiting on this renal transplant list um, for some time. And uh, she presents because they test regularly at the dialysis center, and her hepatitis C antibody is now positive. She has no symptoms, and she had a negative test just one year earlier, and she's been coming to dialysis, which is a good thing, right, because otherwise uh, she'd be suffering uh, quite a bit. But she does admit to use of intermittent substances, and she admits to snorted cocaine and heroin, denying injection. Now you'll want to go into a few more details about bloodborne exposures. Kids love tattoos these days, right? So some of you might like tattoos too, but we won't ask you to show them. But um, you know, the young crowd. Now, there are some pe people who've been exposed through sort of unsafe tattooing, these sort of backyard tattoos. And definitely, like, if you're getting tattoos in prison, that's usually like, not the place to get, uh, avoid exposures. So her ALT is, is elevated at 274. Uh, her hep C RNA is 35,000, and she's genotype 3A. And you do a variety of other tests uh, that are negative. So what's her most likely scenario? So she has chronic hepatitis C with a previous falsely negative antibody because, um, and she's been using cocaine and has ischemic hepatitis as a cause of her hepatitis. Um, she has chronic hepatitis C, again, her false negative antibody a year earlier, and she's been surreptitiously using alcohol. Um, she has acute hepatitis C and due to contaminated medical equipment. She has acute hepatitis C related to opioid drug use or other. Got a little, got to pump up the uh, energy there. It's mid afternoon. Oh, is it, did it work? Uh, I should have moved on. Sorry, my, my bad. All right, we should be getting to 20 pretty quickly. Well, overwhelmingly, you're suspicious about her opioid drug use. Now, she denied injection. So what, what is going on there? Nasal. OK, so um, nasal um, 
use of opioids. Um, we used to say for cocaine that made a lot of sense. And there are plenty of people in the baby boomer generation who did coke in the 80s. I won't ask a poll to see who did coke in the 80s here, but, uh, but apparently everyone is doing coke. But um, you know, there's vasoconstriction with the cocaine, a little bit of blood. You could kind of picture sharing that uh, sniffing equipment to be important. But there are some reports now, including from uh, Tennessee, that suggest that um, many young people are getting infected without injection, and they, they're only reporting um, sniffing of opioids. So, um, so that's one possibility. Contaminated medical equipment actually around the world, if we were in Brazil or whatnot, we'd be more worried about that. We see outbreaks at dialysis centers because they're not quite super careful with all the sort of infection control things that we are in this country. That being said, that on occasion does happen here. Um, and then the others were kind of um, so uh, not very likely. So, so, I mean, hep C and drug use. I mean, this is like the strongest association. That's the pretest question you guys did best on by far. Like, everyone got that. I mean, it's just like if you're playing some word association game, that's what you would do. And there's this long, complicated, which um, Dr. Franco showed earlier, of whom you should be testing. And of course, if drug use is in the picture, even if it's not in injecting, you worry about a sort of underreporting of injection, saying, "Oh, I, you know, whether that's being reported or not." And uh, this is all available, by the way, on the hcvguidelines.org website, uh, which has been alluded to. How many of you have used that website, hepcguidelines.org? Okay, I mean, it should be along with that drug interaction, uh, as well as sort of a calculator website. Those three websites can get you super far in Hep C treatment. But here uh, are the screening recommendations, and they include, of course, injection drug use, and then a long list of sort of risks exposures that are kind of hard to remember. And in a primary care visit, how often are you able to ask all these questions about, well, was your mom hep C positive? Do you ask that? I mean, she could be a baby boomer now if you're meeting a young person who's hep C positive, but you won't necessarily be asking that of a young primary care patient. And that could have happened 20, 30 years ago. So, um, and then there are other indications, such as if you have HIV, if you have unexplained liver disease, and of course, if you're thinking about organ donation, hep C comes into the picture. How often do you retest those at risks? It's uh, generally recommended approximately every year, but it's, if you look closely at the guidelines, there are new sections on the highest risk populations, including people who inject drugs, as well as um, MSM, and they say really at least annual. So you may want to consider more frequent testing for these individuals who are in clinics. And if they're in front of you, and so what if the test was just six months ago, why not test again, especially if there's been any risk behavior in the interim? Um, you know, the hep C incubation time is on average a few weeks, but in some cases is several months. So you know, even if you test someone shortly after their exposures, they could have been incubating and you could have been missing it. And I'll show you how else you could miss it. So I'm gonna talk briefly about acute hep C. That's the earliest phase. We've all so far been talking about treatment of chronic hep C, but acute hep C is the very first phase of infection. And this is a stylization where you notice that there's this delay before the antibodies show up and the RNA is present. And then there's this spike of ALT activity, and in this case, the patient is clearing. As um, you all remember, hep C can be cleared even on your own. Talk about those factors in a moment. And so you might find them in this stage, and um, rather than thinking it's a false positive antibody, you know, if you're seeing a negative viral load, you should honestly think, did this patient have some risk and then clear it? And then the, usual, the other case, which is the usual case of progression to chronic hepatitis, about classically four out of five patients infected, 
And there you see the ALT is often elevated, but not always. So about 25% don't have the ALT. So you can't rely on ALT as a testing. You have to use the antibody. Uh, and so this two-stage testing is very useful for chronic hep C because everyone is hep C antibody with that, by that point. But for this earliest stage, think about use of hep C RNA testing as well as potentially ALT to catch those higher spikes than you would see in chronic hep C. Now the factors associated with viral clearance include being young and female like the patient I just described, uh, being of non-African-American race related to uh, genes that are in this population, uh, if you have a good immune system, if you have jaundice, if you're presenting more symptomatically, you are more likely to clear. Now, unfortunately, only a small minority of patients really present with enough symptoms to come into a doctor. Uh, all this hep C is largely spread uh, silently. And this is a slide just showing an acute phase of hep C in an HIV co-infected patient. So he was HIV, um, he was in for a 10, minus 10 week visit getting regular labs in the Ryan White Clinic you know, every three months. And so came in early for his labs, and he was not feeling perfect. He was a little viral. He was darker skinned, and um, uh, nobody noticed that he was jaundiced when they were drawing his blood, but he was. And the ALT in the thousands. This is a no-brainer case. You bring them back right away. You're like, what's going on here? Let's review for liver insults. Um, uh, as Ken described, you, you, you bring them in quickly. And it, then you see this antibody seroconversion over a couple weeks, and you see this ALT sort of settle down just pretty quickly. Let's say he just said, you know, I'm feeling a little bit off. I'm just going to delay my labs a little bit. He'll come in a little bit later. Well, the ALT is still high. It's not quite as high. His RNA is still positive, but his antibody is positive by this point. So if all you're doing is ALT, what you'll just see is like a bump. And so especially in co-infected patients where you're checking this regularly, you should react to that more quickly if you can, if that makes any sense. So bring them back in and say, let's get the hep C RNA testing. At our lab, we can actually add on the hep C RNA to the HIV viral load, so it makes it a little easier so they don't have to come back. But you don't want them out there not knowing about their hep C and perhaps spreading it. And then uh, if he came in on this day, just a week later, the ALT is normal and you would have missed the whole thing. So it just shows you like, how dynamic this earliest phase is. So it's a bit different than chronic hep C. And so the lab values at any given time point may look super acute, but they also may resemble the cleared state or the chronic state. Now, um, so it requires kind of a high clinical suspicion as well as getting into those nitty-gritty risk factors. You know, did you go get a new tattoo at that tat backyard tattoo party that you shouldn't have? Or you know, um, we had a case of a woman who went for life um, uh, uh, medical tourism and liposuction in the um, Costa Rica and came back with hep C. So, um, and that was only the patient who presented symptomatically. Otherwise, we wouldn't have um, found her. Um, so you have to be aware, and many may underreport it or not be aware of their risks. And so asking about that past testing and getting to some of the nitty-gritty specifics of injection drug use, like did you have a new partner? Um, like, oftentimes we meet couples who are injecting together, and, um, you know, the guy always says, yeah, I'm hep C negative, and then the woman agrees to share equipment with them, and then turns out it's the guy's fault. And 90% of the time, it seems to be the guy's fault, and that's just a good rule to live by in life, and it's gotten me okay with my marriage so far. So, um, so the laboratory testing, make sure the hep C antibody um, 
uh, you add the RNA testing when you're highly suspicious of this. And then look for those viral fluctuations I was showing you. If you see like a low viral load, like 35,000 for this lady, that's not typical, right, in the chronic phase. Usually you see them closer in the 100,000s or a million. So um, think about acute EPC. So now she has acute EPC. She has 35,000 viral load, genotype 3A. Should we treat her? Yes, no, no. Well, recent drug use. I mean, that just means she'll reinfect herself after treatment. So which of these three ideas come to mind for you? Getting a fraction of you, but more than 17 of you are on your phones right now, so I wonder who you're texting. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not quite sure. All right. Whoa. Did I lose that? Did we lose that? Okay. There we go. So oh, most of you are, yes, that's fascinating because I'd say this is shifting over time. Um, because many people would say, well, wait for spontaneous clearance. And 12%, it is a safe place to, to say this. You know, maybe we should kind of wait off. She had this drug use, and you're thinking, well, she could just get it again. So one thing that was already brought up, but I'll just briefly go over, is woman of reproductive age. I mean, she's a young woman who you don't want to leave around with hep C, and so getting her treated at some point makes a lot of sense because of that mother-to-child transmission. There's one state in the union that has mandated hep C testing for pregnant women. Anyone want, know this or hazard a guess? Not, not Massachusetts, not Ohio. California. What was that? California. California, nope. You're thinking coastal. You're thinking like these uh, places with resources. It's Kentucky. When is Kentucky first in the nation in anything? <laughs> Basketball, there you go, SEC. So there's the Kentuckian in here who's ready to defend their state. So SEC rivalry, right? Um, so when you think about infections and any sort of infection, whether it's flu, or whether it's an STD like syphilis, you can think about it this way. There's a group of people who are susceptible. Let's say flu were in this room. You'd all be like, you know, kind of susceptible. Unless you're vaccinated, then you have some protection. So the point is, like here, um, you can be an uninfected person who inject drugs and move from infection to being infected acutely, then chronically, you can clear it. I mean, it gets a little complicated when you think about it. Not as complicated as hep B. Hep B is like confusing. But hep C here, you know, you can clear it, you can become chronic, you can get treated. But then if you're treated, you can get reinfected. So think about this sort of cycle, and that's what you're worried about. Um, and then um, what happens is if you scale up treatment, even accounting for reinfection, you will eventually win, okay? If you leave things alone and say, you gotta wait for everyone to stop, you end up losing, okay? Things spread. Think about an STD, like syphilis or whatnot. If you didn't deal with that on the spot in the high-risk population, if you just leave it out there, guess what happens? More people get it. And that's the whole approach to HIV, right? We're talking about early treatment, highest-risk patients, get them on as soon as possible, make them negative so they can't transmit further. And so this is just scaling out um, based on uh, high chronic prevalence amongst pe people who inject drugs, 50% interacting and guessing what would happen if we scaled things up to just like 10% or 8% of people annually. If you can scale that up, you would eventually, over years, see that decline. That's a model. And the model really has to do with this. So each person with hep C probably only gets exposed to themselves to 
one or two other people, these sort of small micro transmission networks, but then they're silently linked, right? So somebody shares with their girlfriend, but that guy went out and shared with his friend, you know, and brought it into that relationship. Um, a gift that keeps on giving there. So, um, you know, there are others that are more contagious than others, like measles and stuff. So if you think about r naught, there's a movie called uh, Contagion. Kate Winslet stands up there and kind of explains this. But hep C is like the number of contacts per time, probability of transmission, and the duration the patient is infectious to others. The probability of transmission, if I took a needle and infected Ken again, he's already mad at me because I infected him earlier this morning, but if I, if I expose him again, he has a couple percent chance, maybe 1% from one needle that got stuck into my vein and got stuck into under his skin. It's not that high, but it's the fact that we're using together and using all the time that eventually that might happen. So it's number of contacts per unit, but it's also the duration the patient is infectious to others, right? Ebola burns out because the patient dies and doesn't have you know, sort of opportunity to, to do this. Think about chronic FC, all these people out there who just are continuously infectious. And so the idea there would be to think about if flu was continuously infectious all winter, we'd all get it. So, so that's the idea with hep C. And so really limiting the networks helps. Cleaning injection equip, clean injection equipment helps. And I'll show you hopefully some data regarding that. And it's that duration, that duration the patient is infected. That's what we're addressing by treating the high-risk population. And so the other thing is that knowledge of the infectious status may also affect behaviors here. So patients often misclassify themselves. They've been using drugs for a while. They think they have hep C because they have their antibody test. And so they say, ah, screw it. I'm just going to go out and be risky. Well, they could be cleared. They could be cleared and, and then at risk for reinfection themselves. So getting the information to the patient and education can be helpful. So ultimately, this duration of infectiousness is what we're trying to do with treatment. This is a stylization of people's injection networks, just you know, like the, and it's not quite the family tree earlier. It's a different type of relationships, but here, you're just seeing these sort of dyads and sort of people who are infected. Well, it makes so much sense then. If you met a young person, like the lady we just saw, if you brought in the person she's most likely to use with and treat them both, because then if relapse occurs, maybe they wouldn't reinfect each other. So what were the effects? So this is mostly HIV, this is all HIV positive persons. Many of them are using drugs, some injection, but mostly through sexual encounters are getting acute FC. And what they saw in 2014 were acute 93 cases. Then they de-restricted access for this very high-risk population. And they saw half the number of cases in the year following in the Netherlands. Now, you say, well, that could just be chance. But do you think these men stopped having sex in those two-year periods? No. I mean, sex is kind of a powerful force here. And so here, uh, and they did not see decreases in other STDs like syphilis and other things. So this is some evidence that there can be treatment as prevention. Similarly, in the Iceland, where they de-restricted access to people who inject drugs in high-risk clinics like methadone, um, other sort of opioid replacement, they started treatment, and they just saw a radical decline. Yes, there are a few reinfections. But in the end, as they treat the population, there are fewer and fewer chances to even encounter someone if they relapse. And so that cancels out the effects of reinfection if you're able to scale up treatment. Now, Iceland's an island. It's kind of different than Boston or Alabama or Cincinnati. Um, but these are the US-based recommendations for um, people who inject drugs. And there's kind of some update. And just in the interest of time, I won't go through every element of it. But that annual testing that we discussed, 
at least annual. Um, and then depending on the level of risk, more frequent testing may be indicated. Substance use disorder programs and needle exchange programs should offer the testing with the confirmatory RNA, because that's important for the patient. They should be counseled about the measures to, to, um, to reduce transmission. There are many who know about needles and syringes, but then sh care, share the cottons and other things that may be contaminated. Um, and they should be offered linkage to harm reduction services where available. Harm reduction services, I didn't know it can be controversial in many areas. And uh, do you guys have needles changed in Alabama? None at all? OK, so many states are beginning this. And it's Tennessee as um, Virginia authorized it, but there's no local municipality who's, who's allowing it yet in Virginia. It's kind of unfortunate. But um, worldwide, use of needle and exchange, um, needle, clean needles in a high coverage manner, meaning virtually every injection um, is clean is associated with a 50% reduction in new cases of hep C, okay? So um, an active or recent drug use is not a contraindication to treatment. Now, you may meet the patient and say, my goodness, they've got homelessness, they've got you know, a pending court case, they've got other reasons to perhaps defer treatment. The most important piece there is not to just say, I'll see you in six months after sobriety. Try to ally with them, you know? Because I have to say, you know, one of the more stigmatizing behaviors is drug use. And uh, our system does inflict that on a lot of patients. And our clinics probably shouldn't be the ones who are, especially if you're wanting to treat their hep C, either now or in the future, um, you should not try to um, reduce, um, inflict more pain and stigma and say, come back in six months, the patient doesn't feel cared for and doesn't come back. Um, Richard already showed this, so I'm going to skip this, but this is again talking about the young woman. So she seems ready to treat. Now, I'll point out that some of the scans and the non-invasive testing that Ken alluded to can be confounded. So if you're reliant, let's say, on a FibroSure test, in the acute phase with the higher ALTs and even a bilirubin sometimes, that can be confounded. So you have to be kind of careful with that. FibroSure is also confounded by renal failure, which this patient has. So um, she's able to get a fiber scan, which is uh, not surprising for a young woman, very low, not very stiff. It's got that whole jello jiggle. All right, I'm just trying to keep you awake. Um, what's your choice of antiviral regimen? Do you want lodiposvir times six weeks, lodiposvir sofosvir times 12 weeks, Elbazir, I'm sorry, the drug that begins with Z, uh, 12 weeks, the drug that begins with M, uh, eight weeks, 12 weeks. Um, Sofosfavir, Veltatasvir, or uh, 12 weeks, or something else. So we'll just put that up quickly. Get your texting. All right. One of you has hazarded the guest so far. All right. There's not really a, a, a right answer to much of this. But um, there are some that I would say are, are much safer for her in renal failure, so just a little trigger there. All right. Good. You're in? Wait, wait, wait. All right, so Lodipasir sofosfavir, so the drug that begins with H, very familiar to many of you. Is that the one that you're mostly using? Remember, she's genotype 3. I didn't remind you of that, so, um, so not quite as ideal for Lodipasir sofosfavir. Um, neither is elbozergrasopavir, though you do have this pangenotypic regimens. Now, with the renal failure, um, the sofosavir, there's a metabolite that does build up 
And for sofosbuvir, for GFRs under 30, we don't really know what the effects of this metabolite are, but there's worries about toxicity. It gets to pretty high levels in the blood. And so when possible, you, although some people have tried this treatment, it is not on the label to treat such a patient. And so you would stick more to either Elbazir grazopifer for genotypes 1 and 4 or 4GP. So that's, that's it. So usually the treatment is just this. It says at the bottom it's the only treatment option covered under his current health plan. And so that's, that's kind of what we're dealing with. But um, in this case, we have GP. Again, no cefosphere, right? No, no nuke. And you're seeing excellent response rates. And this included treatment naive, treatment experience with interferon, even cefosphere-based experience, and some cirrhotics. And you got excellent results. So renal failure as a, as a condition is, is falling by the wayside as a reason not to treat. And I showed you the slide earlier regarding Elbazirgrazopifir, again, for genotypes 1 and 4, would be appropriate um, for individuals. Um, uh, uh, there's a low level of cirrhosis in this cohort. And so that results in this recommendation, again, found on hcvguidelines.org. If you happen to be treating someone with renal failure, I realize not a very common scenario, although hep C does elevate your risk of renal failure. Now, there's this crazy concept we were talking about earlier with one of you about transplanting hep C positive organs into negative people. What this concept is, is unfortunately because of the opioid epidemic, there are many overdoses, and many of these are young people um, who, despite their drug use, usually their organs are actually quite pristine. <laughs> They're like young people with good livers, kidneys, lungs, hearts. And this now um, is becoming increasingly used at many transplant centers. Is UAB doing this, Mike? Michael? Oh, yeah, they are. So, so this is deliberate infection of hep C in order to jump the list for transplant. And so I used to do an audience poll here, but um, I mean, how many of you would rather be on a waiting list on dialysis for five to six years or would try this and get off of dialysis and then get a 99% cure afterwards? Many of you are nodding. So, um, so getting back to this patient with the acute infection, do you treat now or later? The current recommendations actually do suggest that you wait a little bit to see if she spontaneously clears. That would save a little bit of treatment. Now, those guidelines are a couple years old and were developed at a time when cost of these agents was at least 84,000, if not 150,000 for certain regimens. You know? That cost has declined to now 15,000 or 20,000. And would it be better because the patient's in front of you to treat now because you, you have them there and this whole transmission benefit? And so many of you are actually already ahead of the game and thinking about it that way. Or you just know that that's what I was going to present and so you like to please me. Um, and then the guidelines do state, though, that one should not, ne not necessarily wait if there's increased risk of transmission. And so all these scenarios, which include a surgeon going back to the OR, you don't want a, a surgeon with acute FC operating on you in the OR. Um, and then person with ongoing intravenous drug use is actually an exception to waiting. Now, this is not well known. All the payers are just looking at the front line and say, don't look at the fine print and will continue to deny your patient. So you know, we'll see if this changes over time. Now, there's a situation where a patient has cirrhosis already. They're getting acute FC. Maybe that's a time where you might send them to decompensation. It's a rare scenario, but we've heard of that. And then this reduction in the likelihood to follow up I've already alluded to. This patient, high risk, using drugs, may, um, may be lost in the future. Now, I showed you the six-week thing. Who heard of six weeks before that slide? Not, nothing in, in this um, 
presentation so far mentioned shortened courses. But it turns out that people have tried this. Why is that? For acute hep C. They've tried it because there's an immune system there that's trying to clear the virus, kind of pseudo-successfully at the beginning, and then it might fail, it might win, or it might, yeah. So your immune system may fail or win. So the point is you kind of have an extra thing there, an extra drug, so to speak. And so can you shorten the course sort of with that extra punch that no longer exists in chronic hep C, where your immune system's now tolerant to the virus and you know, it's just kind of letting it do its thing. So, so here it's an active immune system. And so just so you're aware, there is this concept of potentially shortening courses. And eight weeks of lodipasir sofosphere actually did work. We talked about shortening for patients who are naive and non-serotic. Well, in the acute phase, it looks like eight weeks works even on a few patients with higher viral loads. And then um, what is the data for people who inject drugs and treatment, all right? So this is a, a landmark study of the DAA era. Now remember, in interferon era, we were, there were some pilot studies that successfully treated patients, but you could picture interferon and the way it interferes with people's lives, and if you're a drug user trying to be in recovery and it makes you feel like you're in withdrawal, what happens? High rates of relapse. And so that was the big concern there, and why active drug use, very few people attempted it in the, um, in the interferon era. So this is one of the first systematized attempts to do this in patients who were uh, enrolled in opioid agonist therapy. Now, these are treatment naive, not surprising, because many were denied treatment before, um, and they were keeping 80% of appointments. I would keep that in mind, because that's not the whole universe of people engaging in opioid agonist therapy, right? Some are missing appointments more than 80%. But, um, and we're talking about, if you're not familiar, opioid agonist therapy is a catchphrase for both methadone as well as buprenorphine-based uh, regimens. And so here you're seeing excellent response rates, SVR rates, close to 100%. Ignore the genotype 6. We don't really use this uh, Elbasir grisopivir for um, genotype 6, but it's only five patients. Excellent results. Where you're like, well, um, what are they doing during treatment? These are their urine tox screens. How many of you do buprenorphine-based treatment in the office? Okay. How often are their tox screens positive? Depends, right, on the patient. Here we're seeing very high rates. Now, they include cannabinoids, which are perhaps less relevant to hep C acquisition, but 20% using opioids, 10% using coke. I mean, this is what happens when you're screening patients all the time through their drug use, and yet there's a, a immediate treatment arm as well as patients who were assigned by randomization to a placebo. Don't worry, they all got treated in the end. They didn't get skipped over. And their adherence was like this. That's like mind-blowing, right? That's not what you're thinking, like you're worried about adherence, you're worried about, if patients are motivated to get through an eight or 12-week course, don't prejudge, because obviously these patients could do it. Now, it turns out that the regimens that we pretty much consider, forget PROD, which is pretty much off formularies at this point, are more or less safe with a variety of prescribed or um, uh, uh, agents such as opioids. And there's this monitoring for buprenorphine, but in our experience, patients can make it through without big changes in that dosing. And then what about drugs that they bring in? Well, again, PROD has issues, but there doesn't seem to be at least theoretical issues. If you're worried about like, oh, we don't know what happens with the, you know, the, the ketamine or whatever they're using, well, at least theoretically, we're not actually that worried. So, um, 
there's a frequent question, um, not only with methadone and buprenorphine, and by the way, for the small number of studies of those in Lodiposyrsophosphere who were receiving this, there was no change in the response rates. Naltrexone is a frequent thing, because there used to be a black box warning on naltrexone regarding elevations in LFTs on naltrexone. That is actually removed. So just so you're aware, I get this question a lot. Um, and you know what may have been seen in patients receiving naltrexone, and many of them may have had hep C or something raising their LFTs. It's, now at this point, it's no longer a concern. So generally, you should make your choices of your medication assistance independent of their hep C. Now, how, you know, we're thinking about treating her with GP. What other counseling measures are important? Well, of course, liver health is important. But in all honesty, a 23-year-old who's not a drinker, who doesn't have congenital liver disease, how often will she have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis? Really not that often. What you're more counseling her about is reinfection. So again, depending on the type of patient, you will adjust your counseling uh, depending on what their risks are. And so this is the um, needle syringe uh, programs and opioid substitution therapy for preventing hep C, a meta-analysis. Um, Dr. Franco showed you one earlier. And so basically, if it's on this side, it, it says that, that OST is preventing hep C. And you see the pattern across different um, studies. And so use of OST is associated through harm reduction principles with a 50% incidence in primary infection. And so that should be relevant to reinfection counseling. So the better you can do to get patients um, to adhere to the OAT, probably the better you are at preventing reinfection. And similarly for needle syringe exchange programs, I alluded to this earlier, if you do that both with OST, you're getting a synergistic effect. And I realize you don't have access to this needle exchange concept, but um, this is possible. And that's a big part of the reason why in Amsterdam, if you're a drug user who's injecting heroin, you have a 0% chance of getting hep C because of the level of services that you can get in Amsterdam for such a person. Now, that's mind-blowing considering um, what's going on in our country, including my area, which has great needle exchange, but we're still, the opioid epidemic is so overwhelming, we don't have high coverage needle exchange for individuals. And we're seeing all the other complications. And so I show Indiana, um, just because that was where Scott County happened. There are differences compared to the Netherlands, right? Even in Massachusetts, we're not able to cover, you know, via methadone or whatnot, the overwhelming opioid um, epidemic. And Indiana was even worse off. And what happens in Indiana, which hopefully stayed in Indiana, but um, there's the Scott County outbreak of HIV. You've heard of that, 180 cases, right? Well, unfortunately, they just announced in Massachusetts 140 or so cases related to, of HIV, related to injection drug use under, in uh, 20 miles north of Boston, okay? Not dissimilar situation, not quite as high incidence because Scott County is more sparsely populated than this area, but still, 140 cases that should not be happening because if they had access to clean needles and whatnot, HIV, if they had access to HIV treatment especially, we would not be seeing these cases. And so this is a concern. And then the, all the hep A outbreaks you may have heard of associated with this, and hep B outbreaks as well. I mean, all things that shouldn't be happening if we were able to provide vaccination for A and B thoroughly, as well as needle exchange for HIV. All right, and this is just the San Diego outbreak of hepatitis A and the hepatitis B cases in Maine, again, in a cluster related to injection drug use in Portland, Maine, where some of us will be next week. So people who inject drugs have a different set of preventive questions. They have um, 
You gotta think about the clean injection equipment, the opioid agonist therapy, safe tattooing. So patients get clean, and I, um, you know, I also talk to them about um, other sorts of transmission, sexual transmission usually being low unless they're HIV positive. But for young men, I had this unfortunate case of a guy who traded his drug addiction really for exercise addiction, and he was really going to gym, getting buff, and he got involved in anabolic steroids and got hep C from that. It was, he was, he, um, so now I counsel all young men. Uh, I feel a little sheepish about not doing that beforehand, not catching that, so. All right, and reinfection incidence is shown here at these numbers, which are tiny to see from the back, but these are showing zero to 6.3% per year. Is that good, bad? Is that lower than you expected? Well, actually, earlier, Dr. Franco showed you that MSM have much higher rates in Europe than people who inject drugs. And so these are people who inject drugs after their SVR, and the rate's 5%. I mean, that's sort of like, um, in the models, very acceptable. And from your standpoint, you know, that's 19 other people who avoided getting reinfected that year. They still might get reinfected later, but then they are not infecting others, right? During the time they're on treatment. And so if you're not seeing reinfections, you're actually not treating the people who are transmitting. And so if we have at least 30,000, if not higher cases in our country a year, and you see these young people in your clinics, I assume, these 33-year-olds like the one you presented, um, we're not gonna be able to eliminate hep C without dealing with that. And then going back to that study of Elbazir grisoprevir, again, their reinfection rates, if they did inject drugs, of course, was higher, 4% per person years. And if they didn't inject drugs, much lower. This is self-reported. So yes, harm reduction works. And so there's a whole toolbox here for preventing hep C in people who inject drugs. Uh, testing, status, we talked about that drug treatment, reducing transmission from partners. There is a vaccine, believe it or not, in testing, not FDA approved. Changing injection behavior, talking, sort of being real with patients in a non-judgmental manner, just say, you know, instead of just saying don't stop, well, what can we do to make, if you're gonna use a needle, it safer? There are actually videos online for this. I, I know that might get you in trouble on your browsing history at work, but. Um, and then, as you may know, in parts of the country, they are considering safe injecting facilities like they have in Amsterdam. And then antiviral treatment. I can't emphasize enough that if, you know, to prevent these young people getting hep C, to prevent the infants getting hep C from the women, that we have to treat this higher risk population. And then the restrictions that we have, the sobriety requirements, this is just a map showing uh, the sobriety requirements. Alabama is unfortunately very dark here. It says abstain for six months. Is that still in effect as of now? All right, so do you have to submit drug tests? Do they get denied for marijuana? Not evidence-based. Not evidence-based, right? There's no data that you can't cure those patients. But what can I say? Um, and then the fibrosis restrictions, actually, if you have that as well, naturally excludes the ones who are using drugs, the earlier stage patients. Um, and so co-localization of care, I don't have to review this with you. This is, you're already doing this. You're trying to bring the treatments to patients. And many, um, uh, this is an infectious disease expert um, uh, uh, at the Beth Israel Hospital in town who decided we're gonna take on MAT because we have to help our patients get through their treatments for HIV, for hep C, as well as endocarditis, and so ID physicians getting involved. And so, you know, these are the ways that you can be involved, and I would say, you know, don't let your clinic be the barrier. I think I've alluded to that a couple times. You know, make your clinic the place where people are welcomed. Um, 
there was a, a case study in, in New York of an HIV clinic that started that, um, that was beautiful. They had all everything in place. But then the front desk were kind of homophobic. And so like nobody came. They came once and then left. And they got bad word and it failed. There's a story about this. So think about your own clinics. If someone walks in, a few extra tattoos or whatever it is that is a red flag, think about it whether or not that's something that's, that's preventing you from treating the hep C and getting patients the care they need. And to advocate in the end, right? We're in a mode these days of advocating for what's right. And in this case, harm reduction, actually, I'm trying to present the case that it does work. And build the teams. You are all parts of teams. All right, so I'm going to actually not run through this list in the interest of time and turn to questions. I just kind of dropped this kind of like I know you're barely treating because of your Medicaid restrictions, but um, I'm hoping that this will be a, a kind of like, keep trying, keep advocating. Yes? Yeah. And they're mono-infected, not HIV. Right. Yeah. Um, would you do the hep C and then, mm -hmm. then start the PrEP treatment? So you have a patient who was identified with hep C in PrEP? Yeah, when you're, you're, you're initiating the PrEP treatment yep. and you find out they have hep C. Right. So, um, so I don't think you have to delay PrEP for hep C treatment um, or, by, or really vice versa. Whatever you can do to help prevent the patient from any complication is reasonable. Uh -huh. So if they're willing to go on PrEP, you can do that. Tenofovir dysproxyl fumarate and um, FTC, what's used for PrEP, as um, uh, has already been shown to be okay with hep C treatment, um, except when protease inhibitors are involved and you're not using that for PrEP. Right. And that they're, they're, even then, you could use it, um, um, the, at least the lodipasir, sofosfavir, and I'm sorry to keep using those terms, but right. um, you can do it. Okay. You can co-treat in PrEP clinics. And PrEP clinics are kind of interesting because yearly testing is probably what most people would say, but it's very functionally hard to do if you're testing everyone for three months for syphilis and HIV anyway. So most PrEP clinics I've heard of, when they'd want to do repeat hep C testing, just say it's easier just to put it in with everything. I don't know what, you're, what you've heard as well. Yeah. But if you're instituting PrEP, that is a place you'll find hep C. Um, even independent of the HIV, MSM, there's overlapping risk factors. You will find hep C there eventually. There's one in the back, and we'll go to you. I just had a question about just like reinfection. Are we seeing reinfection with the same genotypes, or what's yeah. going on with that? So, um, yeah, in other talks, I would actually present like how you distinguish reinfection versus relapse. And so, uh, if you see a different genotype, then that's much more like that's basically a reinfection. I mean, there's some weird scenarios where that could not be the case. Uh, Ken is nodding in the back as a virologist who does this testing, but. Um, basically, if you have 1A and you clear it and then you get 3, and I use those examples deliberately because that's kind of statistically the most likely in this population, that's a reinfection. The also, it's timing. So it's also like if you document an SVR um, 12 and then it comes up later, even if it's the same genotype, it's probably a reinfection. Now, how can you tell for certain? Well, you could do fancy things in a lab. You could send resistance mutations. If it looks more like no resistance, then that's probably a reinfection. You can also look for other markers of acute infection, which I described at the beginning. Do they have new risk factors? Do they have an ALT that's high and whatnot? That kind of looks more like an acute. 
Now, that being said, a lot of patients in this day and age actually don't come back right at 12 weeks for their SVR, right? And so sometimes you don't really know what happened and whether they were cured and you're just seeing the same genotype again. You're still following me. I see you nodding. So then in that case, um, the safest thing to do is to treat as a relapse, you know, just because you have the extra drugs and whatnot. Um, so it, that's one place where I might do resistance testing to try to figure that out. Otherwise, if you have access to a retreatment, then um, might as well go ahead. You don't necessarily need resistance testing if you think you can justify that. But again, it depends on a lot of those nuances of whether they, you documented that they were cleared, whether they have risk factors, whether they have evidence of a new acute infection. Does that make sense in terms of sorting that out? You had a question here? should treat these high-risk patients, men who have sex with men, yep. um, young women who could get pregnant, et cetera. <laughs> but this is $15,000 a pop. Yeah. So is, if they're insured and they're lucky to have insurance, is their insurance going to pay for it again and again and again? So the question is insurance. So there are many um, payers who have a one-and-done policy, saying you have one treatment for your lifetime. And that's another way to restrict in this population. Not medically sort of the way we think about things. Uh, typically, as providers, while we're not independent of cost, we do think about what's best for the patient. And then we think about what's best for public health. And so uh, I think those two trump the cost. Because you know if you, I tried to show you data suggesting that, um, yeah, it's about that individual. And that individual did something, and they got reinfected. But think about it this way. Let's say during the time that they were treated, and maybe the year afterwards when their drug use was under, under control, they did not infect one other person, who did not infect another person, who did not infect another person. That's why you're coming ahead in the models, and that's why you're coming out ahead on a societal basis, if that makes any sense. So you know, the reinfection thing, while if you look at it from an individual standpoint, it's like we're using so much money for this one patient, and yes, it's not penicillin for syphilis, which is way cheap. I agree with that. But in the end, I'm trying to present the argument that on an individual basis, you have the patient in front of you. The data suggests that only a few percent get infected in the years afterwards. There are many things you can provide to help prevent the reinfection. And so you know, if you can get that number down to around 5%, like the study suggests, then you're actually doing good overall by treating those other 19 people who are now cured and unable to transmit to others. So that's the thinking rather than. Oh, our, our insurer is going to do this. Well, that's where advocacy comes in. I mean, I think we have to state for the record, it's being recorded, that one-and-done policies are just not how you would treat any patient. Say you have one shot at, you know, I don't know what else, what would be an equivalent. It's not the only one more. that I know of that doesn't provide a second might be Alabama Medicaid right now. Uh, I think they give you one shot and that's it. Um, I may be wrong about that, but I... I think that's one. But other insurance plans do typically cover. Another way to think about this is what do we do with syphilis, right? So we treat for both the health of the patient and to reduce the epidemic. Um, I saw a report yesterday that shortages of benzathine penicillin uh, are going to be coming out at a cost of $350 for a 2.4 million unit dose. $350 for penicillin, one dose. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. The other thing we could add is that Australia's story is, yeah. is incredible. Yeah. Um, what they did is they, as a country, uh, negotiated with a fixed price um, for they're going to pay this 
drug company this fixed price, and for three years or whatever it was, they get ad lib as much drug as they can use for three years. So they're, the, the, it's a re, it rewards the health system by saying, we're going to treat as many people as we can as fast as we can. That screens everyone, gets everyone into care on a clock so that you get everybody in. So somebody gets reinfected, you're, you're ready to treat them right now again so that you can you know, get to zero. And Australia will probably be to zero at the end of maybe next year. It's a pretty cool idea. We can't do that here. We're not, we're not sophisticated enough. Yeah. Thank you, Arthur. Yeah. Great job. Great. Thank you.